just as you're finding it, um, I, if I may, I just want to quickly um, show a few of my summer highlights. This is my first preach since, since the summer. So um, uh, Quinn Delport, our outgoing worship pastor, um, had quite a distinctive look. But it turns out that quite a lot of the worship team had actually nailed his look by the time he left. So there are Tim Hodder and, um, and Dan Frith there in all of Quinn's, uh, Quinn's glory. So if you want to carry on that mould, you know who to go to. Um, Quinn and Melanie felt called to Ibiza. That is actually where they are now. But it turned out their kids have been applying for jobs a little bit closer to home. That's Lola, Max and Finn in the church office upstairs. Um, some of us went to some festivals like, uh, like Focus and New Wine. At Focus, we got the chance to, uh, to, to learn a few more welcoming skills, um, which was quite a lot of fun. But um, Rajiv, I don't, I don't know whether Rajiv's here today, but Rajiv, we just wonder if he took it a little bit too far. That's, that's Rajiv trying to, trying to give a good welcome there. Um, there are also silent discos. That's one of the highlights if you want to come to Focus, uh, Focus next year. Turns out Rosie Phillips, um, who's in that photo, is a bit of a dancing diva, but she wouldn't let me show the photo that actually proves it. However, it is around. Okay, it's on WhatsApp, so you can go, you can go and look it up if you want to. Um, this next one has nothing to do with St. Mark's, but I think it's a really important one. Um, so there are many people today who are very skeptical about whether the dreaded man flu is a real illness. And I know there's some of you out there who are skeptical about man flu. Um, but it turns out that in Switzerland, they take it so seriously um, that they even named a mountain after, uh, after the man flu. So you, you can, can you see it there? The manly flu is the name of the mountain. It's 2,600 meters. So it's over twice the, the height of Ben Nevis. Um, so that's how seriously the Swiss actually take, uh, take man flu. Um, and then finally, um, so we've also got a new worship pastor, Tom, who, who's been leading us today. He tells us he used to work for another church but it turns out um, he did some hair modeling on the side. Isn't that good? At least I think that looks like Tom. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> that's got nothing to do with what I'm about to talk about. Who is Jesus? That's what we're looking at in this series in Mark's Gospel. Um, and Mark is setting before us eyewitness accounts, um, especially those of the Apostle Peter, of the life and teaching of Jesus. Now, everyone, even the enemies of Jesus, accepted that this man was unique that this man was special, even his enemies. And Mark has already shown us his uniqueness in all sorts of things um, up to, uh, before chapter 7, which we're looking at today. So the authority of Jesus' teaching, his power over sickness, his power over evil, his claim to be able to forgive sins. Um, two weeks ago, Paul talked about Jesus' power over nature, revealing him as the Lord of nature. Last week, Christine talked about his power over sickness and death, revealing him to be the Lord of life and death. If we had time to look at chapter 6 today, we'd see he is the Lord who divides people. Divides people. He's also the Lord who provides in amazing ways, miraculous ways. And we'll also see some really provocative actions that show his claim to be the Lord of a new Israel, that a whole new people of God was about to begin. But today we're looking at chapter 7, and the focus here is on Jesus as the Lord of religion. So it's page 1010, 1010, um, Mark chapter 7. Um, Lord of religion. And many people today, when you start talking with them about God and the meaning of life and so on, the first thing they want to say is, well, well you, you've got to know this about me. You've got to know this. I'm not religious. I'm definitely not religious. I've heard so many people um, say that to me. Well, the Bible reading today is really, really important um, for anyone who would say that, because it, it's here, uh, perhaps more than anywhere else, that Jesus addresses head on the question, what is religion? And specifically, what does God think of religion? What is it? And what does God think of it? And just before we read, um, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you gave us life. You gave us our, our minds. 
Um, you gave us everything that we have to, to wrestle with the truth and pray that you would help us to understand more today and especially about who Jesus um, really is and the relevance of this for our own lives personally. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 1, that's the big numbers, um, and uh, reading from uh, verse 1, that's the little numbers. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do, do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding on to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For he doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is God's word. So remember, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? And this passage speaks straight to that question. And it tells us, first of all, he is the Lord who exposes religion. Jesus is the Lord who exposes religion. Now, what we've just read is one of many clashes that Jesus had with the Jewish religious establishment, clashes which eventually led to his death. Now, that establishment included this group of people in verse 1. If you do, do please keep the, um, the passage open there. It's in the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, people who were really, really meticulous about their religious practice. One of those practices is described there in verses 2 to 4, this hand-washing ritual that they, that they did before every meal. But as it says in verse 3, this was a tradition of the elders, a tradition. That is, it wasn't actually in the Old Testament law, but it had become a common application of it. And over time, it had become this sort of rule of life for the most religious-minded people. So in verse 5, those people asked Jesus, well, why don't you and your disciples follow this tradition? Now, it's important to realize that that was no neutral or innocent question. You see, by this stage in Jesus' ministry, he'd started to be seen as a troublemaker by the religious establishment. And these Pharisees had actually come on a fact-finding mission to gather evidence against him. And of course, as so often, 
It's not just about religion. It's also about power. You see, these Pharisees were key players in the religion of the time. Influential, respected, revered. And so Jesus, who was both growing in influence, but also failing to toe their party line, well, he was increasingly a threat to them. So they were thinking, well, who is this young upstart who ignores our traditions? Why isn't he conforming to our practices? Anyone else who claims to be religious or close to God follows us. Who is he to behave differently? And he really was behaving differently. Now, at that moment, when they ask him that question, if Jesus had wanted to climb a few rungs on the religious ladder, on the, up the hierarchy, this would have been the key moment. Any, anyone who knows anything about diplomacy knows this would be a key moment for deference and careful diplomacy. But did you see what happens? Absolutely nothing of the kind. Instead, as we saw, Jesus absolutely slams them. He absolutely slams them. Verse 6, he replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. It's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then he goes on to say, you Pharisees have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to the traditions of men. What a response. What a response to the esteemed religious leaders of the time. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord who exposes religion. Because the Pharisees were the most earnest religious people of the time. And yet Jesus exposes their religion as empty and hypocritical. And he does it in no uncertain terms. He he denounces them as play actors. That's what the original word for hypocrite, hypocrites, literally means. It means fakes, play actors, pretenders. People who honor God with their lips, but whose hearts are miles from God. Who say all of the right things, all of the right religious things. Who on the surface look all in for God. You know, our vision this year as a church is to be all in. And they'd have said such positive things about that. Yes, definitely. But in reality, they don't love God. So easy to be so religious, to to look so holy on the surface. And yet Jesus saw straight through it. And he's absolutely scathing, isn't he? So in verse 9, he goes as far as telling them, you are experts at ignoring God and his commands. Imagine being told that. And he illustrates his point with this different tradition called the Corban principle. It's explained there in verse 11. And it was this idea that you could redirect your, your, your giving, your money, um, to, uh, to the temple that might otherwise go to helping your parents in their time of need. Now, of course, that kind of thing probably looked very holy, didn't it? Oh, well, isn't that a greater act of devotion to give it all to God's temple? And not worry about your parents who are not nearly as significant as God. Well, that was their thinking. But Jesus has none of it. He sees straight through it as false devotion. And in verse 10, he says, well, hang on, what about the fifth commandment? You know, the one that says, honor your father and your mother. But your precious Corban principle no longer lets a person do anything for their father or mother. And his damning conclusion there in verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. What does Jesus think of religion? Well, the the shocking thing is that he takes a sledgehammer to the religion of the day. That's what he thinks of it. And especially its sophisticated interpretations of the Bible that actually undermine the Bible's plain teaching. The kind of interpretations that pit one command against another and end up generating these traditions that masquerade as obedience and yet nullify God's word. This is the really, really slippery thing about religion, that it can masquerade as holiness and obedience, and yet it's entirely the opposite. 
And specifically, Jesus exposes two things about this kind of religious spirit, if we can call it that, um, that, that weren't just restricted to first century Judaism, but are actually, um, you'll find expressions of it in almost every society and culture. And one of them is its superficiality. It's superficiality. It's focus on the externals rather than the internals. This thing about getting so hung up on appearances and, and where things are and what, ty- what exact place they go and the exact form of words. But ignoring the deeper, more challenging demands, the more personal demands of God's word. And that's why Jesus calls it hypocrisy, play acting. So many people, so many people you, you talk to will say, you know, I hate religion. Because it's just so hypocritical. I see so much religious hypocrisy in the world. And of course, the hypocrisy is so blatant, isn't it? Where you see somebody who, who sort of, you know, in, in a church or in a temple or whatever it is, is looking so holy. And then you see the way that they treat their family. Or you see the way that they treat other people. And you're like, what's, what's going on there? But so many, so many non-religious people see that. And they hate it. But the thing is, Jesus hates it too. That's what we see today. Jesus hates it as much, in fact, more than any of us do. It's superficiality. And then second, it's diluting effect. It's diluting effect. This sophisticated way that religion has of making God's commands more manageable. Because that's actually what the Pharisees' um, uh, traditions were doing. Making it more manageable. More practical, but more manageable at the same time and of course it becomes this this subtle self-protection device that actually protects us from the challenges of god word god's word so it makes me feel like oh i've ticked the box brilliant done that done that done that but it ends up deflecting my thoughts from the deeper challenges um, that god wants to put to me the, the changes that he wants to see in my in my heart and in my character Now, this kind of religious spirit gives the religious person an opportunity as well to feel proud and superior. Well, I'm I'm doing so much better than they are. Look at all the boxes I've got ticked. There's that kind of proud, superior mindset. I'm keeping the rules so much better than everyone else. But Jesus says, no, no. You're simply experts at keeping the rules of men, not God. So here we see just how slippery and twisted the religious spirit can be disobedience masquerading as obedience hatred for god masquerading as love for god lovelessness masquerading as holiness but jesus is the lord who exposes and condemns this kind of religious masquerade who has no time for empty religious hypocrisy in jesus kingdom hypocrisy has nowhere to hide so what's the relevance Well, for those of us here who are just looking into Christianity at the moment, well, you need to realize that God is calling you. God is calling to you. But he's not, 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 not calling you to become religious. He's not calling you to become religious. And even more important than that, if you've currently been consigning Jesus to the religion box that you're rejecting, well, that's definitely something that you need to revisit when you see Jesus' revulsion towards so much of the religion of his day. And then there's those of us who are already following Jesus now. And I just I want to suggest, and it's, it's one thing, but it's a big challenge, it has been to me, that we need to ask God very honestly, where am I falling into this? Where am I tempted to fall into this? Where am I tempted to hold on to some cherished religious-sounding principle or practice which is actually going against the word of God? Where am I most tempted to religious hypocrisy? Are there ways in which I'm just, in practice, worshipping God with my lips? You see, for me, and I think for many pastors, one of our great temptations uh, to hypocrisy is in preaching. 
And you, you, you can understand why, can't you? Because it's just so much easier um, to teach others than it is to teach myself. So much easier. So much easier, uh, and we all know this, to, to spot um, someone else's flaws and to challenge someone else's flaws, but not to keep an eye on my own, not to keep checking on my own. And so just to try and get a bit more practical, I really wanted to take this challenge personally um, this week. And so I've, I've done three things. One, I've, I've introduced on my sermon template that I use uh, prepping every sermon, a, a template applications to Mark Thomas. Because I want to make sure that every time, and I, and I do try and do this, but I want to make sure I never forget it. Um, how does this apply to me very specifically? Where, where are the challenges? Um, uh, another thing was I asked God. So yesterday morning as I was preparing, I, I asked God. I said, Father, please show me where I'm tempted to, sh- to, to be a hypocrite. And, and please show me, are there any personal principles that, that I'm actually making too much of that are maybe causing me to undermine your word? And uh, quite quickly that morning, um, I, was, I was convicted about something I'd never thought about before. But I realized how could subtly, very subtly, be, so, uh, be something that does that. So I need to keep an eye on it. And then thirdly, and this is quite a big challenge, but I stomached up the courage to do it. I, I, I said to my wife, Kylie, who knows me better than anyone else apart from God, I, I said, Kylie, look, um, do this with, with, with a few ladles of encouragement as well, but I want you at some point to tell me, where do you think I am most tempted, that I'm most tempted to have a mismatch between my beliefs and my behavior? Can you just have a think about it? You, you see things that no one else, else sees, so um, I, I, I'm going to wait for that one. But I really wanted to take, to take that one seriously. And I just want to encourage anyone who's following Christ here, here today, please take some step that helps you become more self-aware. Because all of us are tempted into religious hypocrisy. And Jesus is the Lord who exposes it. He exposes it. But then second, Jesus is the Lord who exposes the heart. Jesus is the Lord who exposes the heart. This is the second half of our passage. We've just been watching on as, the, as Jesus tells the Pharisees what they need to hear. And a lot of us are going, yeah, Jesus, you tell them. But then he calls the crowd to himself. And he tells the crowd what they need to hear. And this is much more widely applicable. Crux of it is there in verse 15. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. In other words, it's not the external dirt but the internal dirt that is the problem. And the Pharisees' preoccupation with externals was actually deflecting everyone's attention from a much more real and deep problem that needed addressing. There is a real problem, according to Jesus, and it turns out to apply to absolutely everyone, not just the religious. Um, He expands on it in verse 21. Jesus says, From within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, Malice, deceit, lewdness or licentiousness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. You see, unfortunately, it's not just religious hypocrisy that makes people unclean or unacceptable to God. If it was, then all of the irreligious people could just sit back and point the finger and have a great time. But no, Jesus says it's all these things as well. See, we may have avoided religious hypocrisy, but have we avoided evil thoughts? Have we avoided greed? Have we avoided envy? Have we avoided slander? And what about the positive counterparts, loving God and others? Have we honoured God, the giver of life, as our creator, as he deserves? Have we honoured other people as they deserve, as precious people made in the image of God? Have we treated other people as we would have them treat us? And that's such an important one because so often we find ourselves caught in our own judgments. What we condemn in others, 
we don't like in others. Suddenly we find ourselves doing. Um, I don't know how many people grew up um, here watching uh, Harry Enfield and Chums. This was one of my favourite uh, comedy programmes going up, and I, I still do think uh, that Harry Enfield created some of TV's greatest characters, including Kevin the Teenager, Tim Nice But Dim, Wayne and Wayneetta Slob, just fantastic um, characters. But I think one of his most insightful creations um, was uh, Frank and George Doberman. I don't know how many people remember them. Um, they were called the, uh, the Self-Righteous Brothers. Go and check them out on YouTube afterwards if you don't know, know them. But every one of these sketches would begin with these two, uh, Frank and George, in the pub, having a completely mundane conversation about something. But then at some point in the conversation, Frank would start to get fixated on some hypothetical injustice or stupidity. And, and as he went on, he'd get more and more angry at this hypothetical person, this straw person he's put up, and get into a total rage of injustice. And it was totally out of proportion to the offence. And the thing, of course, with Frank is he's a, blat he's a blatant hypocrite. He sees what's wrong with everyone else and takes such offence at it. But he's blind to his own faults, and they're so blindingly, blindingly obvious. Now, while there are a few uh, Franks around, I have, I have known a couple. Um, for most of us, he is a caricature. He's an exaggeration. But at the same time, he's a true exaggeration. He's an exaggeration of a true thing, of a real thing in all of us. See, while the religious problem may be to get hung up on the externals and ignore the internals, actually the irreligious can do the same thing, just in a different way. Getting hung up on the sins of others, the externals, but not getting so hung up on... On, on my own sins, excusing things in myself that I wouldn't excuse in other people. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we realize none of us live up to our own standards, let alone God's. Jesus is the Lord who exposes the heart, including my heart, and the unclean things that come out of me and make me unacceptable to God. And as I read verses 21 and 22, I see that, that many of them very, very clearly um, apply to me. But then when I, when I then look at how Jesus interprets them on the Sermon on the Mount, I then realize that according to his interpretation, I'm actually guilty of all of them, every one. And what's more, I agree with God's verdict against them because I know that they mess me up and I know that they mess my relationships up and I know that they mess the world up. He's right to take offense at these things. He's right to say that they're wrong. Jesus is the Lord who confronts us with our sinfulness and our uncleanness, how in ourselves we are not acceptable to God. It's not just about avoiding religious hypocrisy. There are so many other things as well. But with Jesus, this is never the bottom line. It's never the bottom line. Jesus exposes religion. He exposes the uncleanness of our hearts. But most importantly, he is the Lord who makes the unclean clean. He is the Lord who makes the unclean clean. We've been looking at Mark chapter 7 today, but Mark's gospel starts with these words. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the word gospel literally means good news. This is, the, this is a good news book. And what Mark and the other gospel writers, and in fact the whole Bible, the whole Bible is fund fundamentally good news about Jesus Christ. It's good news about Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. You see, the Son of God did not come into the world primarily to expose religious hypocrisy or primarily to expose the human condition. He does both perfectly, but that wasn't primarily why he came. Because if it had been, it would have been just bad news, because we're, we're all stuffed. But throughout the gospel, Jesus is not just exposing situations, he's turning them around. Jesus exposes things and then turns them around again and again and again. He heals the sick, he sets people free from destructive forces, he tells sinners they're forgiven, he restores people's dignity, he turns despair into hope, and as we saw last week, he turns death into life. 
Again and again and again, Jesus brings good news into situations. He brings good news into people's lives. And he is always the difference. The difference is always him. And he had a unique authority in his teaching, but in everything else as well. He had the power to turn situations around that no other human being could turn around. But the ultimate expression of this was not one of his great miracles. It was his death on a Roman cross. Where in his words, Mark Mark 10 verse 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's what my sin and your sin deserve. But on that cross, Jesus willingly stepped in and took our place. The sinless traded places with the sinner. The man of truth and integrity stood in for the hypocrite. The righteous stood in for the unrighteous and the self-righteous. The clean stood in for the unclean. The faithful for the adulterer. The generous for the greedy. The loving for the hateful. The one who always loved God with all of his heart for those who had merely honoured God with their lips. The one who always loved his neighbour for those who consistently failed to. The holy stepped in for the unholy. The worthy stepped in for the unworthy. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can be forgiven all that and become children of God. That's why he came. And that incredible exchange is available to anyone who will simply say to him, Lord Jesus, be my saviour. Lord Jesus, be my saviour. A big question on Monday night. Someone asked a question that any follower of Jesus absolutely loves to be asked. The question, how can I know I'm forgiven? How can I know I'm forgiven? Well, this is how. Because Jesus gave his life as your ransom. And he's done absolutely everything necessary to turn things around for you, both now and eternally. So you can be fully forgiven, clean, spotless in his sight. Nothing left to pay. And just as all of his words carry a unique authority, so do these ones. Mark 2 verse 5, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. To anyone who has faith in him, that is who trusts him to be their saviour, he says your sins are forgiven. All of them. And this is the one person in all human history that you can always take at their word. So as I close, I'd love to invite the band um, to come up. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Lord who exposes religion. So if you're someone who says, I'm not religious, well, here's some good news for you. Jesus is fine with that. Absolutely fine. And he has no interest at all in making you religious. The Son of God did not come into the world to make us religious. He came to make us whole. He did not come to make us religious. He came to make us whole. And I think we all need that one. Second, he's the Lord who exposes the heart. It's what comes out of our hearts that make us unclean. Though we may all sin in different ways, no one is left out. We've all got a heart problem. We all need healing. We all need forgiving. But he exposes us in order to heal us. Because he's he's the Lord who makes the unclean clean. So I'm here to remind you today, or maybe inform you for the first time, that Jesus is good news. He's good news for everyone. He offers this to everyone. He's the best thing that can ever happen to someone because he's the perfect saviour. And he's worthy of all of our love and praise and worship and devotion. That's what we're going to do now. Can I invite you to stand? And we're going to sing.